قال الله تعالى في محكم كتابه الكريم وقوله الحق وهو أصدق الصادقين أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم لكل جعلنا منكم شرعة ومنهاجا ولو شاء الله لجعلكم أمة واحدة ولكن يبلوكم فيما آتاكم فاستبقوا الخيرات إلى الله مرجعكم جميعا فينبئكم بما كنتم فيه تختلفون Bless your gathering and sweeten your tongues with remembrance upon Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad As a gift to the soul of Sayyidina wa Mawlana Amir al-Mu'mineen wa Mawla al-Muhaddeen Ali ibn Abi Talib, recite the second salawat. For Allah to shower onto this gathering with his mercy and compassion, for our du'as to be accepted in this evening, and to hasten the reappearance of Sayyidina wa Mawlana Sahib al-Asri wa zaman recite the third salawat with the loudest of your voices. <laughs> millions upon millions of people Belonging to different faiths, religious groups, and denominations tend to have some serious questions and concerns in regards to the religious institution. If you look within the Jewish community, you find that they have their set of concerns and questions in regard to their religious institution. If you go to Christians, the same thing. This discussion has existed within the Catholic Church and those who adhere to the Catholic Church for decades centuries. Similarly, if you go to atheists, 
one of the causes of atheism is actually a revolt against the religious institution itself, one of the causes. Therefore, even atheists have their set of concerns and questions in regards to the religious institution. When it comes to Muslims, all around the world, whether they live in Islamic countries or non-Muslim countries, whether they are young or old, whether they are ed educated or amongst the average Joe, you find every single one of us have concerns, at many times legitimate concerns in regards to the religious institution. But I'm not here tonight to discuss Christians and Jews and other denominations in Islam. I am here to shed light on our concern in regards to the religious institution, the Shi'i Ithna Ashari school of thought and its concern towards the religious institution. And I tell you, it is indeed one of the sweetest topics for people to discuss. Why? Because everyone feels they're entitled to discuss religion. So after such gatherings, prior to such gatherings, after a season such as Muharram, Safar, Ramadan, comes to an end, you find people gathering in their homes, gathering in cafes and restaurants, social media, chat rooms, and discussing the religious institution. Why? Because nowadays, we live in a society that is mainly democratic. We get to have a say in everything. We're part of the decision-making at work. We're part of the decision-making at school. We're part of the decision-making in the local offices. We're part of the decision-making on a national level. We get to speak. We get to be heard. We get to vote. And therefore, we are extremely frustrated when it comes to the most important institution in our lives. And there is no democracy. And our voice is not heard. And we don't get to have a say. However, those discussions are normally in forms of Chinese whispers. What do I mean? As in they're usually more hidden discussions. When people get together in private circles, smaller circles, they get to talk about the speaker, they get to talk about the Hajj group, they get to talk about the Ziyara group, they get to talk about a certain Marja', they get to talk about a certain Alim, a certain Fatwa. Whether that is right or wrong, I'm not here to discuss that. It does exist and it's prevalent in our community and sometimes it is the sweetest topic for people. It's so convenient. People truly sometimes feel that they are experts when it comes to matter of religion and faith. You see, brothers, the Holy Quran descended over 23 years. More than 23 years it took for the Holy Quran to descend. I want you to pay attention to this introduction. Some of it was revealed in the holy city of Mecca. 
Some of it was revealed in the holy city of Medina. Important occasions called on to the revelation. When something important happened, a revelation was descended. Therefore, a Muslim, an average Muslim, I'm not saying a scholar, I'm not saying somebody who is a researcher in Islam, no. An average Muslim, every Muslim must know the history of the Qur'an. Meaning those verses that you read, where were they revealed and why were they revealed? Because it is only then when you understand the message within this ayah. Now we know that the Qur'an on a night like this was revealed all at once upon the heart of the last messenger, Rasulullah Muhammad. However, the norm was that the Qur'an would be revealed gradually within the course of 23 years. Within those 23 years, some of the verses, some of the laws were even abrogated. Some of them were changed. Amongst the concerns of our community in regards to the religious institution is that the religious institution is not flexible. The entire world is updating itself. The entire globe is rapidly changing and evolving. However, Islamic laws and laws within the religion of Islam remain stagnant and remain the same. And I tell you, this does not come from people who are not religious or they are against the religious institution or they don't care for the religious institution because those people just walk away from the religious institution. This is from people who have concerns. This is from people who are maybe in leadership positions within our community. So while the Qur'an was revealed for in, in 23 years, and some of its laws were abrogated and updated within those 23 years, we as Muslims believe that the message of the Qur'an does not only belong to Muslims then. It was not a guide for Muslims then. It does not only to speak to Muslims 1,400 years ago, but it speaks to me and you today. And the Qur'an is alive today. And the Qur'an must give us solutions today. Therefore, just like times evolve, the Qur'an also, our understanding of the Qur'an, its laws, its regulations evolve. But you have to understand this terminology that is extremely sensitive. Amir al-Mu'mineen wa Mawla al-Muhaddeen Ali ibn Abi Talib when describing the Qur'an says, Inna al-Qur'an hayyun lam yamut. The Qur'an is alive. It does not die. وَإِنَّهُ لِآخِرِنَا كَمَا هُوَ لِأَوَّلِنَا It is as meaningful, as fruitful, as lessonful for the very last of us as it were for the very first of us. Now if the Qur'an evolves and it rejuvenates every single day and it is the solution for the lives of people until the end of time, its laws are also flexible. Its laws also give solution to people until the end of time. 
And since the Quran is the primary lawmaker within the religion of Islam, therefore the Islamic laws must also evolve, must also bring ease to people's lives. It must bring tranquility within their lives. It must make their lives more meaningful, happier lives. If you look at Islam, when Islam came to the Arabian Peninsula, it changed the lives of people. It brought a peace of mind to people. It created tranquility within the Arabian Peninsula. And the Islamic laws and regulations must do the exact same today within our lives. They are meant to perfect our lives, bring tranquility within our lives. And the legitimate question is, do the Islamic laws that we have today do that for us? Do they cater to our special needs? Do they speak to our minds and our lifestyles every single day? And it, it's an extremely sensitive academic topic. You have to pay attention to me, inshallah. And this will try to make it brief and a short journey, inshallah, for you this evening. After your three loud salawats ala Muhammadin wa Ali Muhammad. Forward, brothers, please. As much as you can so that we don't disturb the majlis. People who come in can just take a seat right away. Hey, shabab, ahsantum, barakallah fikum. Hey. Fill in those gaps on the side. Thank you very much. Today, brothers and sisters, when we look at certain individuals, who are in leadership position within our community, who have dedicated their lives to our community. And they have legitimate concerns and they have legitimate questions. Part of the spirit of Islam is to give ear and to listen to the needs of the people. Let me give you a few examples. One of them was the example of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam himself. On many occasions, I'm only going to use one. There was a woman in Medina who had an argument with her husband. You may have heard the story. The, the wife was about to leave the home. The husband tells her, where are you going? She says, I'm going to complain to Rasulullah. What kind of life is this? What kind of injustice is this? Does really, is Allah really okay with this? Does Allah accept the circumstance for me? So this man in return tells her, who do you think you are? You're just a woman. Rasulullah does not have time for you. Allah has no time for you. What are you going to complain about? This woman comes to Rasulullah and she speaks to Rasulullah. And she tells Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam about the pain within her life. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala immediately reveals not one ayah, an entire chapter known as Surat al-Mujadalah. 
لقد سمع الله قول التي تجادلك في زوجها وتشتكي إلى الله الله سبحانه وتعالى hears Allah addresses those legitimate concerns same thing goes to the life and the legacy of the man who we are commemorating in this season a woman by the name of Sauda Al-Amariya Al-Hamdaniya she came into the masjid of Amir Al-Mu'mineen while Amir Al-Mu'mineen was the Khalifa they had done the Adhan they had done the Iqama Amir Al-Mu'mineen was about to do Takbir and engage in Salah this woman comes from the side of the mihrab. Amir al-Mu'mineen sees her with his peripherals. With the side of his eyes, Amir al-Mu'mineen sees a woman standing there. He stops the salah. He does not do his takbir. He says, what do you need? Ya Amatullah, how can I help you? She says, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, I've come to you from a long journey the wali that you have appointed for us, the governor who you have appointed for us, he's forgotten the poor people. He sits with the rich, he sits with the wealthy, he goes to lavish dinners, he's forgotten about the average people. Amir al-Mu'mineen sits in the mihrab. He says, bring me a paper and pen. He writes, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, min Abdullah Ali and Amir al-Mu'mineen, to my governor, you have been removed because of this complaint. When you receive this letter, pick up your stuff and come back. This woman takes the letter, she goes to the wali of Amir al Mu'mineen. Amir al Mu'mineen changed an important, most important, changed the circumstance, changed his decision on the most important act of worship which is salah and when they asked him he said salah is haqqullah Allah waits but this is haqqun nas this is the rights of people Amir al-Mu'mineen changed the, showed us the flexibility within the religion of Islam in accordance to the needs of the people and I tell you this shocking story. This shocking story. Two Imams lived at the same time, but made different decisions. And they were both most suitable for the Islamic nation, for history to address this. They say one day a poor man, he was lost in the deserts. So he saw a man digging whales, sweating, working hard. He went, he sat next to him, he talked to him for a little bit. He found him to be very entertaining, very kind, very compassionate. Then it was time for salah, they prayed. Then it was time for food. So he says, listen, can I join you for food? He said, yes, of course you can join me for food. Time of food came, this man, he saw two lofts of bread and a little bit of milk said to him, this, you work so hard, this is what you eat? He says, yes. So this man obviously wasn't so tasteful. 
So he told him, I think you, you don't like this food, right? He says, yeah, you know, it's... He says, okay, go inside Medina. There ask for the house of Hassan, Al-Hassan ibn Ali. There you find his door is always open and guests are there and he feeds his guests very well and he takes care of them. So this man, of course, he's not going to stay there. He came to Medina, where is the house of Hassan ibn Ali? He got into Medina, he saw the house of Amir Hassan. And he's, he went there and he saw, yes, there is a big sofra and there is food and there are guests. And Imam Hassan is looking after his guests, Karim Ahl al-Bayt. So he sat, he ate, he was thirsty, he drank, he rested. Then he said to them, give me some food. I would like to take some food. So Imam Hassan says to him, why? If you have your family, bring them here. If you have friends, bring them here. Why are you taking food to them? Bring them here. Our door is open to everyone. He says, no, Ya Ibn Rasulullah. There is a poor man in the desert. He works, he's working so hard. And I want to take him some food. I know he cannot afford this food. He says, really? How did he look? He describes the man. What did he tell you? He tells him. He says, that man will not eat this food. You're, well, you're most welcome to take this food to him, but that man will not take this food. He said, Ya Ibn Rasulullah, you know this man? He said, yes, I know this man. He is my father, Ali ibn Abi Talib. Two imams living at the same time. One of them, Amir al-Mu'mineen would break the loaf of bread on his knee. And Imam Hassan Karim Ahl al-Bayt has demonstrated generosity to the people and to the guests which tells you even within the akhlaq of ahl al-bayt there was flexibility in what terms to serve the needs of the ummah and inshallah towards the end of my lecture we will make a conclusion that in our lives what do we learn from the 23rd of ramadan do we learn that we have to stay rigid when it comes to circumstances whether they are religious or personal because sometimes we're inflicted by certain situations. And sometimes we cannot change. We're stuck the same way. Instead of us evolving and changing so that we adapt and we are successful once again, we're used to the old success. We're used to the old ways. While times are changing, we're stuck here and we think somehow things will turn around and come back to the old ways and we will be successful again. This is where people, what happens? They miss the opportunity. Inshallah, we'll speak about that in our conclusion. Now, let us come to our fiqh, brothers and sisters. Very briefly, I want to tell you it is not as gloomy as some people present it to be. That within the hawza, there are people who, for example, examine a certain law when they get to that specific law then the rest of the ulama they drop their pens and they say enough alhamdulillah this alim this scholar has reached this fatwa now we go and research something else no every fatwa within the religious institution within the hawza is examined by that specific marja' by that specific scholar through his students 
And therefore, those theories are discussed, those theories are examined on daily basis. And I'll show you examples of how some of those laws have completely evolved. But first and foremost, you as Muslims, my brothers and sisters, have to understand that Islam itself is flexible. This is my message to you tonight. Let me give you some scenarios. We have two things in Islam. I know this is maybe a little too much, but give me your attention. MashaAllah, all of you are bright and smart young men and women. We have something in Islam called al-mawdu' and fiqh called al-mawdu' al-mawdu' means circumstance, time and place. Al-mawdu' determines what's called hukm al-shari'i. What is hukm al-shari'i? The Islamic law. Let me give you an example. It is the time of Salat al-Dhuhr. The mu'adhin says, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. This is called the circumstance. The time. Now you look at your place, can you pray in that moment? If both of them, if those, both those boxes are checked, the circumstance then develops something called the hukm, an Islamic law, a verdict, a calling, calling upon you to pray. So the circumstance is the time of salah, the hukm is salah is wajib. So imagine it this way, for us to better understand and comprehend this, when the time of salah comes, there are angels. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is calling you. What's your name? Ali. Ali pray. Ali pray. Ali pray. Ali pray. Ali pray until Ali gets up and prays. Then the calling is removed. Let me give you another example of circumstance and hukm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, شهر رمضان الذي أنزل فيه القرآن هدى للناس وبينات من الهدى والفرقان until he says فمن شهد منكم الشهر فليصمه whoever is present in the month of Ramadan must observe صيام what is the circumstance circumstance is the beginning of the month of Ramadan not a day before the beginning of the month of Ramadan so the time has come Shahida means that you're not traveling, you're present. Right? Shahida means you're not ill. And all the other reasons why people cannot fast, this means the circumstance is now complete. So the calling comes from the malaika, from Allah. Call it whatever you want to call it. Ali, sum, sum, sum. Fast. This man wakes up in the morning, he's fasting, he ends his siyam, the calling is over, the next day the calling begins again. Do you understand this circumstance? Let me give you another example. Throughout the whole year, there is no calling for you to go to hajj, because it's not the hajjah. When the hajjah comes, those who have istita'ah, what is istita'ah? If they are capable. If the circumstance is complete for them, they are capable to go to hajj. Then a calling comes to them. What's your name? Atam Ali? MashaAllah. May Allah increase those names. So this second Ali, inshaAllah, when he becomes 15 and he has five, six thousand dollars in his bank account and he's capable because he's injured his leg, inshaAllah, after his injury, 
The malaika, they come to him, they say to him, Ali, you have to go to Hajj, you have to go to Hajj, you, go to, you have to go to Hajj. Now, Ali is busy playing Xbox that year. So he cannot go to Hajj. He didn't go to Hajj. The malaika keep telling him, you have to go to Hajj, you have to go to Hajj. Second, third, fifth, he's 20 years old. He goes to Hajj, the calling is gone. But until he goes to Hajj, the calling is there every year. Every single year. فَمَنْ دَخَلَهُ كَانَ آمِنًا وَعَلَى النَّاسِ حِجُّ الْبَيْتِ مَنْ اسْتَطَاعَ إِلَيْهِ سَبِيلًا So the circumstances, the month of the Hajjah, while you have istata'a, the hukm is, Hajj is wajib. Do we understand hukm and mawdu'q? Very good. If you understand, الصلوات على محمد وعلي محمد. Now, how, does, how do those things change? Those examples that we use. Number one, salah. You're about to say, Allahu Akbar. It is the time of salah. The malaika are telling you, what's your name? Ham Ali? La wallah. MashaAllah. 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 So this third Ali, MashaAllah, who's sitting here. By the way, this is not a setup. People watching online may think we made kind of... So, so, so this third Ali, he's about to pray. And what happens is somebody's drowning. Maybe his wife, she's drowning. So he says, I'll pray. It's okay. And then afterwards, I will save my wife. The same calling, as soon as his wife starts drowning, as soon as she starts drowning, the malaika change the calling to this man. They say, you have to rescue her. You have to rescue her. You have to rescue her. So he prayed. He finished his salah. Now he rescued his wife. The ulama say, your salah is batil. You have to redo your salah. You say, why? I prayed. They say, no. Because there was no calling. The calling was not then for you to pray. The calling had changed because the circumstance changed. The calling was that you have to rescue this woman. You have to rescue your friend. You have to rescue the person drowning. Even if you like them, you don't like them, you know them, you don't know them, they are Muslim, they are non-Muslim, doesn't matter. You have to rescue this person. So you see how circumstance, when it changes, Islam is flexible. Islam changes the calling, changes the hukm. Siyam, the month of Ramadan comes, and what's your name? Ilya? Ilya. This, this person is also Ali, but in a different version. Ilya. So, Ilya, here he is, mashallah, inshallah, baligh. If he is not, when he becomes baligh, the malaika tell him that you have to fast. Habibi, you have to fast. You cannot drink, you cannot eat. You have to abstain from the things that break your siyam until he becomes old, inshallah. He becomes 90 years old. Now the malaika tell him, Ilya, do not fast. Why? Because this fast, if you fast, this will harm your health. He goes to a doctor. The doctor tells him, you cannot fast. This fast, the siyam, will develop, for example, further illnesses in you. He says, no, I am 90 years old. I will still fast. He comes in the day of judgment. He says, when I was 90, 91, 92, 93, I fasted. Ya Allah, where is that in my book of A'mat? They said, this was not fasting. Why? Because there was no calling. How can you say qurbatan ilallah ta'ala when Allah is not asking you to do something? Because many people do things qurbatan ilallah while Allah is not asking them. Allah says, please, don't do this. He says, no, I have to qurbatan ilallah. 
Allah doesn't want you to do this. No. Qurbatan and Allah, I have to do this. And Anyways. So the circumstance when it comes to siyam also changes. Somebody who is ill, a woman that's breastfeeding, a woman that's pregnant, a person who's traveling. He says, Allah, I love you so much. I want to fast when I'm traveling. We say there is no calling. Allah is not asking you to do this. So if you do this and the day of judgment, Allah says you didn't. There was no calling for you to do this. You see? Third is hajj. And we have to move on fast. Third is hajj. Hajj is wajib. You have the money. You have istata'a. You have your passport. Everything is ready. However, you know if you go to hajj, your life is in jeopardy. They may catch you. They may take you. They may imprison you. They may execute. Uh, they may kill you, whatever, I don't know. Now, hajj becomes haram. Hajj becomes haram. You cannot go to haram. So you see the Islamic laws, they are themselves flexible. Now we have two different things. We have sharia and we have fiqh. This is where people get confused. They believe sharia and fiqh are two different things. Sharia means a beautiful, clean drinking water within a river. True? Which is what? The Quran and the Sahih hadith from the Ahlul Bayt. From Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. This is called a sharia. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad. Put your hands and drink. Al-ilm nur. This is the nur of Allah, Rasulullah, the Ahlul Bayt. But this sharia is infallible. Infallible. It is flawless. However, fiqh is our understanding of the sharia and it is fallible. It changes. It updates itself. Today, the madhab of Ahlul Bayt, on the contrary to other madhahib, has a fiqh that is alive. A fiqh that is alive. How do we look at different examples? One very basic one. They say Sayyid Muhsin al-Hakim, rahimahullah, his fatwa was that you have to perform tawaf in a certain, with a certain restriction and hajj. He went to hajj. The Sayyid himself, he went to hajj. After he came back from hajj, he changed his fatwa. He removed that restriction. Why? Because he saw the difficulty of the people. And the religion of Islam is meant to be a religion of ease. So he changed his fatwa. He updated his fatwa. That is when the marja', the person looking at fiqh, keeps the people also in mind. That's one example. The second example, brothers and sisters, is dissections. In Islam, it is forbidden for you to go to somebody and cut their body open. After the battle of Uhud, after the battle of Uhud, yes. The uncle of Rasulullah, Hamza, was taken and you know what they did to him? They cut his limbs, they cut his body. So some of the Muslims were angry. They're saying, you know, if we catch those guys, we do the same thing to them. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, I forbid you Even if you find an ill dog from them, you cannot take him and cut him. So cutting people in Islam is not accepted. But when dissections came, now this is to develop Islamic sciences, the ulama have permitted. Yes, in order to develop the minds, in order to create physicians, in order to, cre to create cure for illnesses, 
in order to develop our medical sciences and our medical schools, you are able to dissect such laws change, they evolved. In fact, some of our ulama, when they look at slavery, you see slavery within Islam, you read the Quran and there is slavery in the Quran. You look at the, the life of the Prophet, there were slaves. So some people tell you Islam is pro-slavery. That is not true. In fact, one of our greatest ulama has written about this. He says, why was there slavery in Islam? Pay attention. Some of you may be asked. He says, because it was the norm at that time. Muslims went into battle and they took Muslims as slaves. And the only way for you to free the Muslims was if you took some of them as slaves. You cannot free your own people if you haven't taken 10 of them. So you take 10 non-Muslims, not, not non-Muslims, you take 10 of the enemies of Islam and then after the battle you trade them, you give them their 10, they give your 10 back. He said, if, the, if Islam and Muslims didn't do this then, the Muslims, their lives would be in jeopardy. They would be taken as captives, prisoners of war, turned into slaves, and there would be no ability for exchange. But once the world came and abrogated slavery and took a stance against slavery, then this slavery methodology, this notion of slavery was abolished, and slavery in Islam is also abolished. Now, without making this too complicated, brothers and sisters, what do we learn from this? What do we learn from this? We learn two things, especially those in charge of religious institutions, our important places within our community, is look at the flexibility of Islam and Allah when it comes to the laws. We must follow the same methodology when it comes to the people, especially the youth. Sometimes it takes time for the youth to develop yani, for example if he's praying in a certain way and his salah is not perfect you know he's not putting his hands so perfectly doing his sujood maybe his wudu is not as perfect maybe his, his dress code maybe her hijab may, let us be lenient it took 23 years for the Quran to develop if you spend 23 years on a youth on a person from the time they're born, by the time they're 23 years, if you spend the same quality time with them, I guarantee you, you will have an ambassador of Islam. You will have somebody who represents Islam in the best of ways. Huh? But we have to be a little more lenient. We should not also expect everything and all the change overnight within people who are coming towards religion. Give them a chance. Be patient with them. Listen to them. And number two, it comes to our lives. Tonight, many of us, we have our resolutions. Oh Allah, this year I want this. This year I want to get married. This year I want to get a divorce. This year I want to start a new business. This year I want to have a new career. This year this, this year that. What have you done? We have to be flexible, brother. In life, this is what Allah teaches us from the Quran. It means exactly this. That learn from the Quran. You look at how Quran changed when circumstances changed. Every ayah switches different themes, talks about different issues. 
It teaches Muslims to be flexible. Today, when you see a difficulty in your life, ask yourself, how can I change this big problem into something towards my advantage? How can I use this calamity and turn it into the greatest benefit for myself? This is a flexible Muslim. This is a Muslim that carries the spirit of, of Quran within him. Don't look at your life and say, my life will never change. My life will never become better. Now I am bankrupt. Now I am divorced. I could not graduate. I failed. I have a handicap issue. I have a... a no, 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 no. All those things can be changed if you're strong enough to make that desire to change. And on nights like this, you pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Prayer is very important. Allah says, Pray to me. And I am there to listen to you. I am near. I am listening to you. You have my attention. Look at how the Ahl al-Bayt, they taught us to speak to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And tonight, since it's my concluding majlis, allow me to take you to a man who showed that flexibility while he was at the peak of Iman. Peak of Iman. And Iman was nurtured to him, fed to him, given to him until he had the strongest of vision. Strongest of vision didn't mean he, you know, he didn't need glasses, no. It means he differentiated within his vision the right from wrong. He was not confused. He was not hesitant. Sometimes the most painful times in our lives is when we're, we're confused and we are hesitant. A mu'min should not keep himself in that state. They say that when he was a boy, seven, eight years old, somebody came and told him, take a grape, take this grape, eat this grape. I've washed this grape for you, enjoy this grape. And grape was not like now where you go to the supermarket and you buy grapes. So he says, no, I cannot eat this grape. They said, why? He says, I will not enjoy this grape before my imam, before my mawla. He's a little boy. So this man, who was a companion of his father, says to him, open your mouth, Abbas. Let me give you this grape. He says, no. I will not take this grape. I will not eat this grape. I will not enjoy this grape. Go read his biography. He says, instead give me the grapes. He took the grapes. He ran into the house of his brother, his imam, al-imam al-Hussein. He said, ya Aba Abdullah, here are the grapes. He said, Abbas, why didn't you eat the grapes? He said, I was taught. Not before you. And that is why when he, years later, went into the Euphrates, into the Mashra'ah, he said, Ya Nafs, Ya Nafs. Tonight, tonight on a night like this, it's the battle of the Nafs. The battle is over, over the shaitan inside. يَا نَفْسُ مِنْ بَعْدِ الْحُسَيْنِ هُونِي وَمَا كُنْتِ بَعْدَهُ أَنْ تَكُونِي هَذَا الْحُسَيْنِ وَارِدُ الْمَنُونِي وَتَشْرَبِينَ بَارِدَ الْمَعِينِ